Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Around now, lots of kids are heading back to school. But in America, two years after a post-pandemic grand reopening, terrifying proportion of students just aren't in class. And if you've ever tried to get a rickshaw or a tuk-tuk in Bangalore, you know just how stressful it can be. Now there's a new app trying to change that. And that's good news not just for the customers, but for the drivers too. First up, though. For decades, America and the Soviet Union were locked in a tense and often terrifying game of nuclear brinkmanship. Many people think these weapons serve a useful purpose and actually prevent war. They believe that nations will be so afraid of the possible effects of a nuclear war, they'll avoid any war at all costs. The threat of mutually assured destruction eventually concentrated minds on both sides, the endless accumulation of weapon stockpiles just could not continue. International treaties limiting nuclear weapons development were signed during the 1960s and 70s. The governments of the United States and the Soviet Union, after reviewing the course of their talks on the limitation of strategic armaments, have agreed to concentrate this year on working out an agreement for the limitation of the deployment of anti-ballistic missile systems, ABMs and continued right through to the 2010s. This treaty is rooted in a practice that dates back to Ronald Reagan. The idea is simple. As the two nations with over 90% of the world's nuclear weapons, the United States and Russia have a responsibility to work together to reduce our arsenals. New START, the current treaty introduced during the Obama administration, came into force in 2011. But as that pact looks set to expire, the future of nuclear arms control appears worryingly unpredictable. The world has had decades of arms control, which has greatly reduced tensions. Anton LaGuardia is The Economist's diplomatic editor. But I think the world is on the brink of a new nuclear arms race, and one that will be harder to stop because it's more complex. But there have been worries about an arms race pretty much since atomic weapons were created. What's different about this new arms race? Where do things currently stand between the major powers? Nuclear weapons are inherently dangerous, but there are, I think, several reasons for which this is a different moment. First of all, the war in Ukraine. You've seen a great nuclear power invade another country. It has also made nuclear threats. You've got the rise of China which is 
building up its nuclear stockpile quite fast, according to the Pentagon. And you've also got the breakdown of arms control, which is the thing that kept these tensions under check because America and Russia, the two biggest nuclear powers, have now stopped exchanging information on what they're doing with their missiles. And New START, which is the last main restraint on the size of their stockpiles, is about to expire in 2026, and there is no sign of a follow-on agreement. And the last factor, I think, is technology. You've got improvements in missiles with hypersonic missiles coming into the arsenals. You've got improvements in accuracy, improvements in sensors, and you've got the introduction of artificial intelligence into the military domain, all of which makes for a very unpredictable, unstable and dangerous mix. Why is nuclear arms control breaking down? I think it's breaking down for a number of reasons, mainly because of the rivalry over Ukraine. America and Russia had started to talk about a follow-on agreement, but then Russia invaded Ukraine, talks were suspended and have never been resumed. The other problem is that China has been completely uninterested in this years-long process of arms control that America and the Soviet Union and then America and Russia engaged in, partly because it had a minimal deterrent for years and partly because it sees constraints as a way of limiting its rise and giving America license to take risks. How much do we know about what China's doing specifically? We know what the Pentagon says China is doing, which is that it's building up its nuclear stockpile quickly from a few hundred warheads at the beginning of this decade to maybe a 1,000 by the end of the decade and maybe 1,500 by 2035. Now, that number is close to the deployed limit that New START imposed on America and Russia. And therefore, we're moving towards a world where you have not two nuclear peers, but three. And that is a lot more complicated. The Chinese don't say a lot about what they're up to. They don't like engaging in discussions about their doctrine. They're not constrained by arms controls agreements. They don't much like confidence building measures. The Americans have tried to draw them into a dialogue about so-called guardrails. But Jake Sullivan, the American national security advisor, summed up the Chinese attitude in this way, which is that if you wear a seatbelt, you're more likely to drive recklessly and more likely to have an accident. Therefore, better not to have seatbelts. The Americans say, no, this is completely backwards. Seatbelts have saved countless lives and have not led to more reckless driving. And so what does three-way deterrence look like? I mean, what does America do about this? So three-way deterrence looks a lot more complicated and a lot scarier, to be honest. During the Cold War, America and the Soviet Union and then Russia had a thing called mutual assured destruction, which is they wanted enough weapons to be able to survive a first strike by the other side and have enough leftover to destroy the enemy that attacked them. And agreements were based on parity. America and Russia have roughly the same number of nuclear weapons. So the question now is, what does parity mean in a world where there are three countries with large stockpiles 
And you have two countries that are close friends, Russia and China, which have said that they have a friendship without limits, that conduct joint air patrols, conduct joint maritime patrols, and conceivably in future might be allies. So does America need an equal number of weapons as the two of them combined? Now, that's plainly unfeasible because they will want to build up to American levels as well. So you have this inherent pressure to increase numbers. And at some point in this cycle, the Indians might want to increase their stockpile because they have a border dispute with China. The Pakistanis might want to increase their stockpile because they have uh, fought several wars with India and so on and so forth. So the thing becomes extremely unstable very quickly if the parties are not careful. Okay, this doesn't sound great. It sounds like uh, escalation is far from ideal. How can the great powers make sure that the worst doesn't happen? I think there's several things that can be done. The first thing is don't panic. The second thing is start talking and start talking quickly. America has offered talks on arms control to both Russia and China. I think Russia and China need to say, yes, let's talk quickly. America and Russia do have a history of talking to each other, even in bad times. So you have to hope that at some point, maybe after the Ukraine war, the two sides can start talking to each other again. And because they are the biggest nuclear powers by far, that is the most important thing that needs to happen. And until then, if both sides are willing to stick to the current limits, it would be a good idea for them to do so. As far as China is concerned... It is difficult to understand their calculations, but surely they must know that an unrestrained nuclear competition is not in their interest. Their economy is not doing brilliantly. The risks are high. They too must see that some kind of restraint ultimately makes sense. They may not come round to that realization yet. They don't have the same history that the Americans and the Russians have, and they have not had the scare of the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, which is what ultimately made the Americans and the Soviet Union step back from the brink. Anton, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Aurey. Nice to talk to you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. For most of the past century, attendance across all sorts of education in America has been on the rise. Then the COVID-19 pandemic happened. For the best part of two years, schools were closed. Children were forced to learn at home, staring at laptops. Those pandemic-era school closures are now a thing of the past, but the classrooms still aren't as full as they used to be. School is starting soon, or has already started, for millions of school children in America. Tamara Jilksbohr is our U.S. public policy correspondent. 
And it's been about two years since schools reopened after the pandemic, but we're seeing a new problem develop. Schools may be open to in-person learning, but many students are struggling to come back to class. When you say many, how many do you mean? So the best data we have is from a study out of Stanford University. It looked at attendance in 40 states and D.C., and it found that in the 2021-2022 academic year, 28% of school children across the country missed at least three weeks of school. And this chronic absenteeism, which means missing 10% or more of school, almost doubled from before the pandemic. In Alaska, almost half of students are chronically absent. And this seems to be impacting poor students the most. In Alaska, 55% of low-income kids were chronically absent, compared to 49% of kids overall. Now, some of this might have to do with surges in the Omicron variant that year. But it doesn't explain all of it. Two states, Connecticut and Massachusetts, have released data from last year, 2022-23, and it seems like this troubling trend is continuing. And so do we have any idea as to why? So it's really hard to know why these children are missing school. But I think the easiest way to think about it is through the lens of the work-from-home revolution with adults. Working from home is easier. You get to work from a comfortable place. You don't have to wear uncomfortable work clothing or spend money on them. You can sneak a nap. And kids are feeling this too. For some families, this is financial and logistical. For example, some families are struggling with childcare. And an older sibling staying home when a younger sibling is sick makes it easier so a parent can go to work. Many teens also started working during the pandemic, and they're now juggling working with school. So absences can quickly rack up when you're doing things like that. And of course, like all of this existed long before the pandemic, but few ever imagined actually changing the five-day in-person model of schooling. And the pandemic really shook things up. So now people are starting to think differently about how kids can learn. And what's troubling is that this seems to be extending beyond just absences, but also to whether children are attending school at all. We're starting to see enrollment declines as well. Meaning not just missing some school, but just opting out of school altogether? Yes. So we are seeing a rise in private schooling, but it's small. There was a 30% rise in homeschooling between the fall of 2019 and the fall of 2021. And exactly what that means for how much kids are learning isn't entirely clear. Some states actually have strict rules for homeschooled children, but some barely check on them at all. And that's clearly a huge issue. And many studies have shown that going to school in person is important. Students get better scores. They graduate at higher rates. And schools do more than just provide education. They also provide social services, like free meals, like after-school programs, sometimes even medical and dental help, and of course, access to sports. And kids learn social skills. So what's to be done about this? What kind of enforcement options are there? I remember when I was a kid, it was actually illegal for me to skip a bunch of school. Yeah, and it still is. And some states fine or even jail parents if their kids are truant. But it seems like that doesn't really work. I mean, if your parent is in jail, are you going to go to school now? 
we have to really think about the root problems here. Why is staying at home so appealing to these families? And then we can maybe help them through social services or helping them with childcare or whatever it is that is the reason that they're staying home from school. What is interesting is that during the pandemic, we, as in the media, made a really big deal about kids returning to school. And for a while, it seemed like everyone was scrambling to get back to in-person learning. But now it's clear that there were many people who were much less eager to do so. Thanks very much for joining us, Tamara. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to like in Bangalore. The weather is good. The energy in the startup capital is quite high intensity. But one thing most visitors and residents will tell you, the traffic is terrible. Shailesh Chitnis is The Economist's global business correspondent. And sometimes the fastest way to get around the city is not through a two-wheeler, but it's through a three-wheeler called rickshaw or a tuk-tuk. But the problem with the rickshaw is that the drivers may not want to go where you want to go. And so a typical joke in Bangalore is anytime you're making plans, first ask the rickshaw driver where he wants to go and then make your plans accordingly. It's a bit of a joke, but there's also truth to that because for the longest time, hailing a rickshaw was a problem. And this is something I've personally experienced on multiple occasions. It requires pleas, threats, invoking all kinds of gods before the driver agrees to go where you want to go. And sometimes even that is not enough. And the experience is no better using some of the ride-hailing apps like Ola, which is a local Indian ride-sharing app, or Uber, which most of the listeners would be familiar with. Both these apps charge a commission to the driver, and as a result, the drivers are not very incentivized to use the app. So all in all, not a great experience for the riders, and it's not that great of an experience for the drivers as well, as they are voting by staying off the platform. But recently, since November, things have started to change, slightly for the better. In what way? Well, it's thanks to a new app that's called Namayatri, which in the local language means Our Journey. And this app was launched in November by the local rickshaw drivers union, and it directly connects drivers to the riders without any digital middlemen. Now, what makes this app interesting is it charges no commission, and all the transaction directly happens between the two parties. And so separate from Ola and Uber, there's not a 25 or 30 percent commission. It's a straight transaction between the two parties. And this app has now grown in popularity since its launch. The last I looked at the numbers, it averages around 70,000 trips a day and has more than 80,000 drivers on the platform, which is roughly a third of all Bangalore rickshaw drivers. And it has around 1.5 million customers on its platform. Okay, so it sounds pretty successful. How are the drivers' union able to do this? Yes, so that's a good question. This app is built on a platform called the ONDC. That's a mouthful, but what it stands for is Open Network for Digital Commerce. Now, ONDC has been built in partnership with the Indian government and a few software communities, which is essentially a part of India's digital stack that tries to make the digital marketplace more accessible to more number of users. If you think about a marketplace like Amazon, the key benefit that it offers is it connects the sellers to the buyers. 
And by virtue of having all the sellers and buyers on their platform, Amazon is actually able to skim some money off the top in terms of the services that it offers. But because of that, it also has market power in deciding who can be on their platform. And if for some reason you don't agree with the terms of use or you don't agree with the charges, you may not be on the platform. So that can be a big disincentive for a lot of smaller operators. And ONDC is built to actually take care of the problem where a lot of smaller retailers, smaller operators who want to build their own marketplace can do so using this framework. But why is the Indian government doing this? What's their aim here? I think if you look at it from one standpoint, it's to defang the platform power for a lot of the marketplaces like Amazon. There's another company called Flipkart, which has very large market share in India. And there's a concern that these companies are quite powerful and over time their power is increasing. And the idea behind ONDC is it applies to all kinds of transactions. And essentially, you can create smaller communities of marketplaces between buyers and sellers. And it's not just restricted to cab drivers. If a group of restaurants within an area wants to come together and have their own food delivery service, they can actually use this platform to offer their services, which could be a competitor to Uber Eats or Swiggy or Zomato, which are local Indian food delivery companies as well. So I think the Indian government wants to move India away from its dependence on a few large players and introduce what I'd like to call a noisy digital bazaar, replicating the noisy markets in India, replicating them online as well. And so what's your take on this app? Is it actually helping small businesses? I think it's too early to tell. Definitely the Namayatri story has been a success story and it's worked much better than anyone would have expected. So that's that's definitely a plus. But I do worry that the government is getting too involved in this. And by this, I mean ONDC is meant to be an open platform. It's supposed to be an open source protocol. But recently, the Commerce Minister, Piyush Goel, he made a comment that all big platforms need to be on ONDC. Otherwise, they would risk being banned from the platform, which implies that the government somehow has a say in who is on the platform and who stays out. So this sends a wrong signal because what it implies is this would not be a truly open platform, but it's a government-backed platform. As with most things in India, the government should not overplay its hand and let the market play this out as it were. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Shalish. Thank you. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some news for you if you're a subscriber. The Economist's app now has a dedicated tab for this show and for all of our podcasts. It's the easiest way to tune in every day. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, check out the special offer we've got at the moment, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just head to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. 
By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.